Blog Talk Radio. Hello, I'm Stephen James. Welcome to the Story Blender. This is where great storytellers share the secrets to great storytelling. And today's guest has a fascinating background. Not only is he a novelist and a magazine article writer, he's also a speechwriter. In fact, he's the head speechwriter at Walt Disney World. Tom Morrissey has written nine novels, won many awards for his writing. He's also a master scuba diver trainer and used to be the executive um, director of Sport Diver Magazine. So whether he's writing a magazine article, crafting a novel, or writing a speech for the president of Walt Disney, Tom's life revolves around telling great stories. Tom, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Steve. And, uh, I remember you, the first time we met was at a conference. I don't even know if you remember it. I sat in the back of your workshop that you were teaching, and I remember you were um, talking about creating moral dilemmas for your characters, making it seem like, for example, there's someone injured and the character has to stay to help them, but they also have another obligation to go and take care of something else at the same time, so they have to make a choice. And that still rings with me, what you said, about the importance of forcing difficult choices on characters in fiction. Sure. I mean, fiction is is mostly about difficult choices, and it's mostly about overcoming obstacles if we if we don't have obstacles we have a we have a nice tableau but we don't have a story yeah it's interesting uh i was teaching recently and it struck me that if everything goes as planned in a novel it's a plot flaw most people don't think about it that way but if everything goes as planned that's a flaw with your story okay i'm going to ask you a question now yeah you don't mind when you write a novel, do you know how it ends? Not when I start it, no. Okay. I've never started a novel yet where I know how it will end. Okay. Uh, the ending comes to me as I ask questions and work on the story. What about you, Tom? I I generally know the ending. Uh, in fact, okay. I generally write the ending first. And, and that's one of those things that it mystifies people that are on the other side of the coin. Um, in fact, I... I read a transcript of a conference where John Irving and Stephen King were, were talking about writing, and Irving's talking about you have to be a, a an expert in your story. You have to know where you're going. You know, you don't get on an airplane unless you, to go to Chicago unless you know it's going to Chicago. And uh, how can you possibly be an expert if you don't know how the story ends? And, you know, King's responding, well, why would you possibly want to write the story if you know how it ends? So... <laughs> I know that's that's kind of the way I look at it. Now sometimes I'll have ideas and often they will end up moving forward and becoming sort of like maybe a mid-book climax. Um cuz of course you'll have ideas because you know how story works, you know sure. about escalation and twists and all of that and so but I found that all of my endings end up being a result of questions that I ask during the story writing instead of before it begins. I did a I did a novel um, called In High Places a number of years ago. It was, it was one of those books that I was writing between contracts on other books, and that one 
I, I literally wrote the last chapter first and wrote toward it. Uh, so I I always had an I not only an idea I always knew exactly how the book was going to end. You know, it'll make you happy to know though that I'm working on a novel right now where I have no idea whatsoever how this thing's going to end. <laughs> It's always good to hear, but I have to say, in full disclosure, there's an idea that I have for a new book where I thought of the ending as I brainstormed the story. So it may be that, you know, I will end up writing one where I know the ending first. We'll have to see if it works out. I need to ask you about the scuba diving, buddy. It's like I have only been scuba diving a few times in my life, and it was always up in Lake Superior. And... Uh, we went diving on a wreck in Lake Superior, and it was the, uh, the water was 36 degrees. Sure. Yeah. Now, I've never seen that color of blue in someone's lips before that day, except on CSI when it's on a dead body. Okay, I was going to say, when you're saying blue in Lake Superior, you're not talking about the color of the water, because that's pretty much green, as I recall. Uh, yeah, I've, I've dived uh, Superior many, many times. Were you, were you in a wetsuit? Yeah, wetsuit, not a dry suit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you have my sympathies. Um, <laughs> do you remember the name now, of the wreck? What's that? Do you remember the name of the wreck by any chance? No, no, it's been too many years ago. But it was near Superior. Um, the, the I think there's a city, or Duluth. No? Okay. I think du- Superior, yeah, Superior. Near Superior, so. But you've you've done some cave diving, which is kind of really far out there, like um, cave scuba diving, because there's really no exit. And I think you told me the story of some tragedies that you wrote about in the magazine of of people that had never never actually made it out of caves. Sure, sure. Um, in fact, there, I'm a I'm certified by the National Speleological Society Cave Diving Section as a full cave diver and. When I say full, it's spelled F-U-L-L, not F-O-O-L, um, which which means that you're you've been certified to do transits to go in one aperture of a cave and out the other rather than uh, back and forth. And the way cave cave diving used to be extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, people were dying by by the scores every year. And finally, uh, there was a guy named Sheck Axley who. Uh, decided that he was going to research every single cave fatality and see if he could come up with a foolproof way to prevent that type of accident from happening again as long as you know people were, were following some kind of rules. And by doing that, he was able to refine it to the point that cave diving actually had a safety record that was probably better than bullying. Wow. Huh. As, as, as far as fatalities go. Uh, and then, tragically enough, uh, Sheck died in a cave diving accident in Mexico. Oh, wow. He and a, another friend of mine, Jim Bowden, were uh, trying to reach the bottom of the deepest water-filled cave in the world. And uh, Sheck got his regulator t- tangled in line, and so he reached for his spare and accidentally grabbed the oxygen regulator instead. And oxygen at extreme depth is toxic. Within a matter of seconds, you... you uh, go into spasms and drown. And in fact, that particular accident became the genesis for the first chapter in my very first novel, which was hmm. uh, Yucatan Deep. I um, have I ever told you the story about how that novel came to be. No, I don't think so. You, you know Dave Lambert, right? 
and and for the edification of our listeners, Dave Lambert used to be the the fiction acquisitions editor at Zondervan, uh, HarperCollins Zondervan. And I had sent Dave a book of essays, and I sent it to him and to three other publishers. And uh, Zondervan was the only publisher that didn't make an offer on the book of essays. And, And Dave's response was, you know, we really like it, but we don't know how to sell this, which was prophetic because the people that ended up publishing it didn't know how to sell it. <laughs> but um, what he said, you know, we've, we've always, you know, we've always been looking for a, a guy that writes fiction in, in a Christian genre. And, and we really like the way that you write. Have you ever considered doing a novel, which probably had to be the silliest question I was ever asked. And so I said, sure. And um, we set a time for me to, come up and visit him in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I was living in Michigan at the time, only about two hours away from their offices. And I was freelance writing at the time, and I got busy. And the idea was I was going to go up there and pitch him on a book idea. And I ended up getting in the van to go to Grand Rapids and having not the foggiest idea as to what it was I was going to pitch to Dave. Ah, nice. Very (laughs) organic of you. (laughs) So, So the whole way up, I'm... You know, it's a Christian publisher, so I'm praying <laughs> for an idea, and and uh, nothing's coming to me. Went to see Dave. He took me on a tour of their offices. He took me down in the basement of the old Zondervan building. They're in a different one now, but where there were people actually putting the thumb indexes on the on on Bibles. He took me into the the vault where they had one copy of every book where that Zondervan had ever published, and then looked at me with this, "What do you look like?" You know, yours might be one of these, even though I hadn't mentioned a book to him. <laughs> and we went to lunch and talked about writing and fiction and our kids and fortunately I had left my briefcase in his office so we had to go back to his office before I took off and then Dave being a gentleman just offered to to walk me out to the the front door and as we're walking across Zondervan's old lobby they used to have a fountain that had um, a statue of of, uh, Jesus washing the feet of Peter and as I went by that fountain, I had a glimmer of this first chapter of this book. Hmm. And, and nice. in the 50 feet or so between that and the airlock door, because this is this is Michigan and it was cold outside, uh, the whole book came to me. And so we're standing in the airlock, <laughs> shaking hands, and and as I getting ready to take off, I, I said to Dave, do you mind if I pitch you an idea? And he goes, no, please do. And so in about three minutes, I gave him the, the pitch for the book, and I, I described the opening chapter, which which uh, has these two guys doing this cave dive on separate lines because they decided it's too dangerous to be in tandem. And then when the one guy uh, comes back up, his his friend doesn't meet him at the point where they're supposed to, to, to meet to start decompressing. So he knows that he's passed. And uh, and there's a moment where the the guy that didn't come back, his wife comes down to meet them. And and she realizes that he's gone, and she tries to swim after him. And, and the, uh, the first diver stops her and is holding her. And the chapter ends with him looking through the mask into her eyes, and she's weeping. And that was literally a story that was told to me by Jim Bowden. That that's that was uh what happened after after Sheck passed. 
mm. because uh, he and Shaq decided to do these two separate lines and then do all the decompression together. And when he got back to to the beginning of the decompression line, and within a couple of minutes, Shaq was not there. He knew that Shaq wasn't coming back. And the the first person down was the National Geographic videographer, and the second person down was was uh, Shaq's wife. So I you know I pitched this and. And Dave did something that is just unheard of in the publishing world. He said, "Yeah, we're going to buy that." You know, he didn't talk about pub board or anything else. Mm, said, wow! Go ahead, go ahead and write me the proposal and send it in, and we'll we'll get you a contract. Tom, which book was that again? What's the name that of that was one? Called, uh, that was called Yucatan Deep. Yucatan Deep. Mm. Yep. Yeah, because our listeners might want to check that out if they hear it after hearing the um, background story on it, and and then and. It left me in the quadri of I had just hijacked Jim's story <laughs> to open it. <laughs> so the first thing I did when I got home was call him up and, and give him some background and say, listen, if you don't want me using this story, I'm going to just torpedo this book. And uh, and uh, so I talked him through it, and he said, oh, no, absolutely, you have to write that book. So I, I was off the hook and was able to go ahead with it. I think that brings up a good point that our experiences from our lives end up affecting the stories that we tell, whether they're written stories and novels or told stories, say a speech presentation or or an oral performance, maybe if you're a comedian or something like that. But when you are writing a speech for someone else, how do you do that? Like how do you tap into maybe their personal experiences in order to help them to tell a genuine story when they're uh, presenting? A lot of times they don't realize what I'm doing when I'm doing it, but I try to engage the people that I'm writing for in just casual conversation, get them talking about their families, their interests, that type of thing, and then use vignettes from from what they've told me in their speeches as, as illustrations of points. Uh, the, our, our president... Here is a. Uh, um, he came from a big Greek American family, so there's just tons of, of material there. The uh, we had a uh, previous uh, president who was deeply influenced by her father, who who went through a very heroic recovery from from a heart attack, and and at a time when heart attack victims were supposed to just stay in bed. You know, until they passed, he he got up and and exercised every day and and to to full recovery from it. And I don't like doing stump speeches. By stump speeches, I mean the type of speech where you write it and pretty much anybody could deliver it. I I, I like writing for one instrument. In fact, the reason Did that you I say got, instrument, yes, <laughs> I love it. Okay, tell that, us about that real quick. That that the one instrument. That individual and that voice, too. Nice. Um, when I started speech writing, I I was a freelance writer. Uh, was I was a fledgling fiction writer, and I had the typical freelance mentality, which is anything that came over the transom, you would accept it and work on it. And one day, I was working on a newsletter for a very fine company called PPG Ditzler that does automotive refinishes. Uh, they sell paint to body shops. And I was doing their newsletter, which was the Ditzler Repaint Reporter. And, <laughs> and uh, I did one of these every couple of months, and 
it paid enough that probably if we had to, we could have lived on the Disler Repaint Reporter, my family and I. But as I'm putting this one issue to bed, I'm looking at it on my screen and asking myself, how is this missional? How is this contributing to what I want to be as a writer? And and how does it contribute to what I see as my ministry in life? So I started thinking about it, and I thought, and I said, okay, I know that really I feel called to be writing fiction. Um, I believe that my travel writing, which I had been doing for a number of years at this point, probably contributes to that in that it it gives me aspirational settings. Uh, by aspirational settings, I mean the types of places that people would save for years and years to go to that would be a trip of a lifetime for them. At at times, when I was working on Sport Driver, I would do one of those trips a month. Hmm. And uh, and the third part was my biggest hurdle in fiction writing at the time was everything that I wrote sounded like Tom Morrissey. <laughs> and I needed to be able to write in other voices. It, it, if for no other reason, when I did a, a shift in point of view, I wanted to be able, I wanted the reader to be able to tell which character is talking without sure. necessarily having the attribution. So I decided, you know, okay, speech writing has to stay too. Then, and I got rid of everything else uh, except for fiction, travel writing, and speech writing. I got rid of every other kind of work I was doing. And I, at the time, I was able to pick and choose my speechwriting clients. And I'm sure the clients thought that I was choosing them because they were the most powerful in their industry or whatever. Actually, I was choosing them because of the way that they spoke hmm. and and their their personal affectations. I, I tried to get the, the widest variety of personalities and personalities as expre- expressed by voice as possible. And that's that's how I worked on my dialogue that's how I worked on on my fictional voice was by forcing myself to write speeches for other people that sounded as if the other people had written them so for you there is a big um i guess not overlap but uh, maybe that's the right word between fiction writing and speech writing in other words there are same there are the same kind of principles uh that apply to each of those venues, we'll say. Oh, sure. What, what would you say some of those are that, that apply to telling a great story regardless of if, if it's told or written? Well, first of all, let me say that storytelling is my principal way of speech writing. I, I don't... I tend to shy away from the type of speech where, for instance, you're addressing shareholders at a at a, a quarterly or annual meeting and just doing a data download to them uh, because there, there's very little story to that. I, I try instead to open with a story and close with a story and I try to the first story is there to to warm people in and to get to the subject matter. The second story is to illustrate how a resolution can be achieved within that subject matter. Uh, so, and the the beauty of story in, in speaking is that it's, first of all, it's the one type of communication 
in which people aren't expected to be formulating an answer while they're listening to you. You know how it is when we're doing conversations. 50% of the time you're trying to think of what you're going to say back uh, after the person gets done speaking. But in story, you're allowed to completely engage and listen. Uh, so, And that's what you want the the audience at a speech to be doing, is just completely engaging and, and listening. Um, secondly, and you're, you're going to get me onto my onto my pulpit here, but uh, when you're when you're telling a complete story, um, and by a complete story, I mean I know that you'll know what this is, but but let me explain it for the listeners. There's there was a guy named Gustav Freitag back in the 19th century, who at about the time of the American Civil War wrote a thesis on what what constitutes great story. And he did this by studying the plays of Shakespeare as well as principal fables from from mythology. And he realized that the definition of story, which had been used up until that time, which was the Aristotelian uh, idea of rising action or, you know, prostasis, climax or epistasis, and then falling action or catastrophe. Those are, those are three words that that uh, Aristotle used. Those weren't really a story. Those were more of an anecdote. And in order to have a complete story, you had to have exposition at the beginning. You had to have an inciting incident. Then you could have the rising action. Then you could have climax, falling action, moment of resolution, and most importantly at the end, denouement, which, which is poetic justice uh, at the end. And if you had all seven of those, Freitag said that you then had a complete story. Well, fast forward to the 20th century, and there's a guy named Paul Zak, who is, was a, is, I believe, a behavioral psychologist. And he started looking into what makes us feel warm and fuzzy when we're when we're writing a good when we're hearing a good story or hearing a song that we like or watching a movie that we really love. And he realized that there's this hormone called oxytocin, which previously was only identified as what bonded children to their mothers. When when a mother is nursing, both she and the child are secreting this hormone called oxytocin. And it it creates the the bond between mother and child. Well, he found out that actually everybody secretes oxytocin, and and they do it in response to a, another a number of stimuli. Uh, but but good story seems to be one of the things that does that. Well, in the 21st century, uh, then there's a guy named either Keith or Kevin, I can't remember which, Cuisenberry, who was at uh, Johns Hopkins. And he started researching what exactly was it in a story that made people secrete oxytocin and get this warm and fuzzy uh, feeling. And he found that only those stories which had all the elements of Freitag's pyramid uh, were able to do that. And uh, that's that's something I, I always hammer when I'm talking to uh, people about speaking off the cuff is that if you are going to tell a story, tell the story. Don't don't just share a vignette or an anecdote because it's not going to have the type of effect that a story does. That is really that's fascinating. And when you were talking about how when we have a conversation, it's different because we're thinking about you know what we might say in reply and so on. And I've often thought of it as a continuum between performance and conversation 
where in a conversation nobody's sitting there thinking, if there's a pause, oh my goodness, he forgot his lines. But of course, if you're an actor doing a monologue or something, that's what you'll think if they pause in the middle and they try to regroup. So there are different expectations for it. And it's it's interesting that what we're doing right now is the only real mix of conversation and entertainment or performance that we have in our culture where we have a conversation, but it's meant to be entertaining for other people. So in a sense, it's also a performance. Isn't that an odd, this is an odd creature that we're, that we're tackling right now. It is, it is. And, uh, even more interesting is that we haven't worked this out in advance. So I'm, I'm still doing that 50% listening to you. and 50 <laughs> I love how you were able to kind of look at the sweep of story, you know, but, through all of history, from Aristotle all the way up to the 21st century, and look at what really makes a story work. And um, I think that uh, for for me, when I listen to a story, if it doesn't have emotional resonance, if it doesn't have an ending that's sort of a twist, I'm usually not super engaged. But when it has these elements, where it has an ending where I didn't see it coming, and it's like, whoa, that's that's powerful and and that emotional connection now are those part of your philosophy and the way that you teach just kind of touching on um shared emotions among the listeners and among the the speakers and also finding a way to end it in a way where people don't expect it those two aspects you know it's it's funny that when i get reader mail Oftentimes they'll be they'll be talking about a book and they'll go they'll, they'll start out by saying oh I really love the book and then they'll tell me oh but I really hated it that you killed so and so or <laughs> that you know John did not fall in love with Mary whom I thought he was going to fall in love with all the way through the book and I mean the fact of the matter is if I had written that they could have written it. They didn't need me to tell them a story. Um, yeah. They're 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 coming to me for for something that wasn't born in their head. So, you know, I'm 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 with you on the. It doesn't necessarily have to be an O. Henry ending, where right. it's, a, it's a complete shock and twist, but it it needs to be an organic ending that makes sense within the scope of the story, but sure. at the same time is not what the reader would have necessarily written themselves. Yeah, I often tell people unexpected and inevitable, which are those two things that you just mentioned right there. Sure. That it's um, organic and it's logical to the story, but it also ends up being something that they don't necessarily see. By the uh, way, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you weren't shocked by my oxytocin example, because a lot of people dislike that intensely. They, they, oh, really? They hate the idea that that the the warm fuzzy that you get when reading fiction is actually the result of chemistry, but <laughs> it's it's how God wired us to to get that warm fuzzy, you know. So so we're silly if we don't uh, take advantage of it, you know. And people also listen to it and go, "Well, gosh, if you can start breaking fiction down into into that kind of element." eventually a a computer can write fiction. And the fact of the matter is, yeah, probably a computer can write fiction, but very probably it won't be able to write tomorrow's fiction. And by, by that I mean that 
the the cool thing about literature is it's evolving all the time. I I remember talking to a a person at a writers conference and she said, you know, I can't understand why I'm not selling because, I mean, my stories sound exactly like Hemingway. <laughs> and uh, you know, my my first thought was, well, probably to you they sound exactly like Hemingway, but I didn't give voice to that. But <laughs> what, I, what I said to her was, well, bear in mind, first of all, people want to read Hemingway. They've they've got about five feet of books on the shelf in the library that they can go to and read all the Hemingway they want to. And secondly, Hemingway was writing, well, at this point, close to a century ago. And he was writing for an audience of a century ago. And you're not writing for that audience. In fact, you're not even writing for the audience of today. You're writing for the audience that's going to receive your book when it's published a couple of years from now. And and it's going to be a different type of book and a different type of story than what have what would have resonated with uh, an audience in the 1930s and the 1940s. See, now you're getting me on my soapbox, and that is people always talk about how important it is to read the classics. And I tell them, um, if you want to read the classics to understand their culture or what was going on through their mind, have at it. But if you want to read the classics in order to figure out how to tell great stories today, you're going about it the wrong way. And people, what? You don't want us to read the classics? And I say, no, I don't want you to read the classics. <laughs> Not to try to learn how to write today. It would be like studying the um, horse and carriage to try and figure out how to create the next eco-friendly car. I mean, you're studying something that was applicable to that time and that place, but we know so much more about story today than they ever did back then, that you can tell and write much better stories. Yeah. Back in the 1980s, I think it was, uh, there was a writer named Jay McInerney who wrote a, a book called Bright Lights, Big City. And the entire uh, book was was written in um, second person. I think it's second person. Yeah, you. You know, you were, you were waking up in your bedroom, you know, et cetera. And um, he he later wrote about when he was writing that book, a friend of his said, well, you're not trying to write the entire book in that person. He said he was too embarrassed to tell them that he was. Well, now if you go into into writing programs and talk to people, they can't understand why you would be writing in anything but that person. And... And the fact of the matter is that it's going to very, it's going to sound very old in about another ten years or so. So, you know, it's. So how do we do that? How do we write for a time where we don't even know what might be popular? Um, well, you do it. I mean, <laughs> uh, I I remember, I remember working on a book. I did a book called Pirate Hunter. Uh, a few years ago, where one was one was first person and one was wait is you first is you third or second person I'm not recalling now, um, but anyway, um, where I had one character expressing their story in first person and another character expressing uh, their story in third person, and. And uh, I thought it was very, very clever doing that. And then I read, I can't even remember which book it was that you wrote, where you did those two things and you changed tense. 
when you went from character. Yeah, I think I do. Yeah, Placebo <laughs> is one of my novels where, yeah, I changed so that the first that person went, oh, man, was, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> was, present, was present tense and the others were past tense. And yeah. So for me, it just grows out of, you know, the story. I've done some third person. For those who are listening, that's like he saw, she saw, like that. First person, I, I experienced it. Second is you, as, as mm-hmm. Tom mentioned. So... I mean, some of my books and some of my scenes cover the gamut between present tense and past and you and I and he. And for me, it all grows out of the story. What does this story require of me as a storyteller? Yeah. And by the way, for the listeners, when we're talking about first and third person and knowledge of what those things are called, as as well as knowledge of parts of speech, absolutely unnecessary to be a writer. Um, I remember where I was in a English class one time, and and I confessed ignorance as to what a gerund phrase was or something like that. And one of the other people in the class said, well, I can't believe that you wouldn't know what that is. And I said, lady, when I take my carburetor apart, I don't know what the parts are called, but when I put it back together, it runs better than it did when I took it apart. <laughs> I love it. And I don't know what those things are a lot of times either. And But I know how to tell, you know, a story and I know how to write them. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to understand, you know, the movement of a story as you do, whether it's writing a novel or telling a great speech, writing a great speech. And personally, I think the great speeches are stories and some of the worst stories are speeches. <laughs> Sure. But I think you know what I'm saying. It's it, it's funny that when you talk to people in business, um, a lot of times they will seek out political speechwriters to be their speechwriters in in business, and then they can't understand why it's not working for them. And the difference is, first of all, if you if you write political speeches. You're always writing for the soundbite. You're you're basically creating a package that's going to contain these little 15-second nuggets that will sound good when they're on television. Um, secondly, political speechwriters uh, tend to be people who got their jobs initially by working on campaigns. Uh, who can afford to work on a campaign? Usually, a younger person. Uh, so it's not uncommon to find people in writing speeches in the White House, for instance, who have not yet hit their 40th birthday. Uh, people that do C-suite uh, speech writing, by C-suite I mean the people that write for for chief executive officers, chief operating officers, uh, that type of thing, the, the people at the very pinnacle of a company, tend to be about the same age as the executives that they're writing for. Hmm. And, and corporate uh, speaking... As long as it's not being done to media, if it's being done to to uh, an audience of peers, for instance, or uh, in our case, we do a lot of talking to people that are in love with the Disney brand, they want to hear stories. And, sure. Um, when you think about it, a speech is probably the least effective way of communicating information. Because... When you're 
When you're speaking, if you're a fairly rapid speaker, you're probably going at maybe 180 words a minute. Uh, normal speaking pace is about 150. If you're listening to a book on tape, it's about 160. Uh, a decent reader is going to be ripping through the words at about 700 words a minute. Really? Uh, yeah. And so, Interesting. And so if you're, if you want to effectively convey information, you, you probably should write a memo. But huh. people don't come to speeches just for the information. They come because they want to see facets of that person's personality. Uh, they, they come because they want to be able to tell their friends, I heard. You know, and, and I heard means I was in the same room with and breathed the same air as this person. And story just allows you to, to amp up the warmth that people are looking for when they come to hear a speaker. So talk us through, I know that you've done, you know, you've written speeches for the president of Disney. Um, do you have any stories or, or even um, illustrations from writing for him that you could share with us that show some of these principles of great presentations? Um, let me give an example from the the vice chairman of Ford Motor Company back back when I was when I was uh, working for them. Um, this this vice chairman did not like to use story in speeches, and he certainly would not tell a joke in a speech. The you know the the old school Detroit speech always opened with a joke, usually one that had nothing to do with the with the speech. But um, anyway, this particular vice chairman uh, looked almost exactly like the guy in the American Gothic painting and had had the personality that that painting implies and um, he was he was averse to using humor he didn't want to tell stories and he was going to be addressing a group of scientists at Ford Motor Company on the subject of innovation and most of these scientists spoke English as their second language. <laughs> and so I'm picturing, you know, this dour American Gothic guy spewing out facts to people who are translating what he's saying back into their native tongue and being bored out of their minds. And I, I said to him, listen, I'm going to tell you a story, and I'm going to write out the story for you. And I said, just do this for me. Go home and tell it to your family at dinner. And if they like it, then you tell it again at lunch tomorrow. And I said, try telling it to everybody that, you, that you're that you sitting down with over the next week and see if they like this story. And the story I told them was actually something that happened to me, um, although I had him telling it as as uh, this happened to a friend of mine. Sure. And um, So I'll tell it in first person because it's the easiest way to do it. I was... I was working for the dive magazine, and I was flying from from uh, Los Angeles to um, Palau. Palau is about 600 miles east of the Philippines in the Pacific Ocean. And en route, we stopped on the island of Yap in the Federated States of Micronesia. Now, Yap, you might remember from leafing through National Geographic as being the place that has the big stone money. And uh, and 
so they announced that we were stopping in Yap for 45 minutes, and I figured I am never going to get to Yap again. And as it turned out, I ended up going to Yap like seven or eight more times. But, but <laughs> at the time, I thought I'm never going to get to Yap again, and I really have to get off and at least get my passport stamped so I can show people that I've been to Yap. So I I had my laptop with me, and I didn't want to leave the laptop on the airplane, and I didn't want to leave my my camera on the airplane, so I, I took them both with me and uh, got my passport stamped. And when I'm walking around this itty-bitty little, literally thatched hut type of airport, and there is a family there that is either greeting somebody that had just flown in or seeing somebody off that was about to leave. And when people do that in Yap, they, they dress in traditional costumes, which is basically... Everybody is wearing these bright iridescent colored loincloths and mm. flowers in their hair and nothing else. And there was this entire family standing there from a little three-year-old to an octogenarian grandfather, and they're all dressed the same way. And they they are just screaming out for, you know, take my photograph uh, <laughs> to me. <laughs> I mean, they weren't, they weren't literally screaming, but but I thought, okay, I've got to get a picture of this. So I walked up to them, and using that pronoun-free English that Americans always use when they're talking to foreigners, I I said, uh, take picture, and uh, pointed at my camera, and and the the older of the group nodded. So I kind of motioned and got them together under a palm tree, and I'm I've got the camera up, and I'm trying to take a picture of them, but the laptop is under my arm and in my way. So I laid it on the ground in front of me, and as I'm getting ready to snap the shot, the the octogenarian of the group leans forward and looks at the laptop, and then he looks up at me, and he goes, "Is that a 386 or a Pentium?" <laughs> And in conversing with him afterwards, I found out that most, because there wasn't a lot of employment opportunity on Yap, most uh, youngsters ended up going away to college and then getting jobs elsewhere. And the way they stayed in touch with people back on the island at the time was by fax. They would, uh, because phone calls were too expensive, so they said they would fax letters back and forth. But the island was about to get internet service. So for the very first time, um, people were going to be able to use email. So everybody was shopping for a computer. And, and uh, of course, even though they had never seen a computer prior to this year, everybody wanted to get the best one they could. And, uh, and at the time, the two hottest chips at the time that you could put in. Right into a laptop or a 386 or a Pentium. Uh, in fact, I, when I mentioned to him it was a 386, he goes, oh, yeah, the Pentium would create too much heat and, you know, you'd need a big <laughs> fan. Um, and so we, we used that, you know, it, and it, it got the laugh that we wanted, and then, but it also set up for the body of the speech, was, which was we're living in a world where there's no such thing as a third-world market anymore. Because communication is so instantaneous, uh, everybody wants the latest, greatest, even if they've never had an example of something before. Because at the time, automakers, uh, including Ford, traditionally would build a vehicle here for a while, and then they would ship the tooling overseas. And the overseas markets would make the old car 
for a while while the domestic market was making the newer car. Huh. So and so the third world countries tended to be manufacturing kind of the hand me downs in Detroit. But uh, he was he was making the point that that wasn't going to work anymore because people were aware of what the latest greatest looked like, and that's what they wanted when they went to buy something, even if they'd never bought a car before. That sounds like a perfect story for that. And uh, How, and yeah. this guy How then you... ended up. Every speech I did after that, he go he would start with you know he would ask me, okay, what's my story? What am I going to tell when I? Oh really? Huh. <laughs> that is because that is truly work. fascinating. I love how. How did you come up with that perfect story? Uh, did you did you think about it for a long time, or did it just kind of come to you on the spot? No, it just came to me on the spot because we were we were talking about one of the reasons he was addressing this group was. Ford would give awards to to researchers for for innovation and breakthroughs as a way of keeping them as researchers um, because most of these folks, in order to advance uh, through regular routes monetarily, would have to get promoted into management. And when you promoted them to management, you would lose them as a researcher. So to keep people doing research, uh, they would get awards every year that would. Uh, boost their salary up to the equivalent of a manager and he was he was talking he wanted to talk to them about the importance of of being innovative and and doing the research that was going to keep them a cutting edge company love it and and when, great. when he talked to me about that the, the first thing i thought of was was the laptop story now are there other keys that you can think of that are really good for those of us who do presentations or do talks um, maybe uh, I know a lot of people talk about voice, inflection, and what you wear, and all of this stuff. But I don't hear any of that coming from you. I hear more just this genuine connection with your audience. Yeah. Um, the I ask people to get comfortable enough with their speeches if they can that they don't necessarily have to read them. In fact, that they can be comfortable enough with their material that when they come to the story, for instance, they can step away from the lectern and okay, tell the story nice. that way without the lectern in between the two. Um, there's a friend of mine who's who's who studied speech dynamics, and he said the one reason that the lectern is there, other than just a place to put your papers, is that it constitutes a shield. And he said in, yep. the, in our primal animal beings... When we're standing in front of a group, we picture ourselves as being the defenseless individual without the weapon, and they're all the wolves that are going to eat us. <laughs> and, wow. Nice. And, yeah. and, uh, so, so we people, hold up our shields. <laughs> so people want it's, the, they're huge the shields sometimes, shield. too, aren't they? <laughs> Those podiums. But, but as, as you can tell, when you're, when you're speaking, you don't want the shield. You, you want the warmth. Uh, we did one presentation that one of our executives did over and over and over again, which was basically her sharing her her life lessons from from a long career, uh, working up through management and becoming an executive. And the way that we did that was we started her off at a lectern, and she basically gave the premise of what it was that she was going to be talking about. And then she moved to a table that had a lamp and a glass of water, 
uh, on it in an easy chair sitting next to it. She would sit in the easy chair, and then she would read selections from her journals uh, to her audience. And then at the end of that, she would walk to the very edge of the stage and take questions. And the reason that we did that was because it had three degrees of formality to it. Uh, The first degree of formality was the standing behind the lectern, exactly how people expected the executive to be speaking. Uh, The second was almost a a maternal posture in that you've got somebody sitting in a chair reading to you. And and again, we're, we're wired to listen fully to story. And so when we're being read to, we're wired to completely listen. And then the third level of formality was nothing between the audience and the executive. In fact, sometimes she would even step off the stage and walk through the audience while she was talking to to convey the, the information that I'm like you, I'm one of you. So, I mean, great things as, to keep in mind, you know, as we all give talks to people and presentations and speeches. And the one thing, I mean, we did Q&A at the end like that uh, just because those particular audiences we usually could had a good idea as to what the questions were we were going to get. If you're if you're doing Q&A when you speak, um, one thing I always recommend, too, is do the Q&A before you end the speech. By that, I mean get close to the end of your talk and say, yeah, I'm going to wrap up in just a few minutes, but I know that you've got things on your mind that you want to ask me. So let's take about 10 minutes here so we can we can take care of that and, and who's got a question for me. And then nice. do, do some Q&A and then end your speech because that way you get to control the note that the speech ends on. You know, whereas, That's excellent, sure. Because otherwise you could end up with a clinker of a question. And, and that happens and, so often. I've seen it happen. Yep, and uh, there's a... There's a psychological principle called serial recall, which uh, I demonstrate this when I'm doing speech workshops, and that I'll, I'll give a series of like 16 numbers. And I'll ask, you know, what was the first number I gave you? And everybody would be able to recall the first number. And I go, what's the last number I gave you? And everybody recalls that. And then I ask, what was the 11th number I gave you? And nobody knows. And the reason nobody knows is because we are wired to remember the first thing that we hear in any episode, uh, and we're wired to remember the last thing that we hear. And the rest of it just kind of becomes gray. Uh, I remember when I was doing research for my master's degree in storytelling, and I came across that same type of research, mm -hmm. first in the the first instance and the most recent instance. Yeah, it's called primacy and recency. Huh. And um, and it absolutely applies to speeches. Uh, they're they're going to abs- they're going to remember the first thing you say. They're going to remember the last thing you say. Now think about it. what's the first thing you say when you speak. What's the first thing most people say? It sure is great to be in Philadelphia. Right. You know, I I like to thank my good friend Steve for asking me here today. And so basically, you're taking all that really powerful ammunition and just firing it away into the air. Uh, better to open with a story. And then after you tell the story, then say, it's really great to be in Philadelphia. You know, you, you, then you, then it's safe to go ahead and use that front matter. But make sure that the first thing that you say is what you want people to remember. And then make sure that the last thing you say is, is what is is the point you want people to remember. 
I love it. It's good stuff. Tom, I know you've also written a book for novelists uh, that you have uh, available, I think on Amazon at least, if not all throughout the Internet. Take a second, tell us about that. I want people to go check that out if they're writers themselves. It's a book called The Novel and the Novelist. Um, It was written initially as a as a, a Kindle book, um, an, an e-book, and because uh, I, I wrote it on, I wrote it to be to be sold through the Kindle Direct program, and uh-huh. and enough people were asking me for, they said, you know, I really like to take notes, and I don't like the way you take notes in an e-book, so could you do it as a print book? So, so um, I have it available in print as well. It's the only thing I have that I was that I've self-published. Um, it's it's published by a company called Blue Corner, which is Tom Morrissey. And um, in the primary reason I wrote it was uh, to have something that I could give to people who had taken my classes, so they could go back and and refresh themselves on some of the some of the principles that I shared in my classes. Now, unfortunately, as as I as my classes evolved, this book is starting to get old. So probably. Oh, later this year or, or early next year, I'm going to go through and just revise the whole thing. But um, it, in particular, takes one uh, book in high places, and it dissects um, how I wrote the book. Nice. And and uh, and and talks about you know why certain elements are in the book. And uh, the reason I did that was because in high places sold well enough that it's probably going to be around um, for a long, long time. Uh, you'd be able to find it in libraries or buy it online. So it's it can be used as a companion volume with the novel and the novelist and uh, help you understand how it is that you put a book together. The, re- the reason I did the book was because, you know, we go to we go to writers' conferences and when people ask you, what do you want to speak on? And um, and let's say that you and I are asked that, and we come up with, okay, I want to speak on the importance of fidelity to fact and time. In other words, if I'm writing about prohibition, why it's important to get all my facts right about prohibition. And people, because they like your books, will come to you to your class and sit there and listen to you talk about that. But you can see the look on their faces, which is, you know, this is really nice, and and I'd love to get to the point where I can be concerned about fidelity to fact when when I'm writing about prohibition. But really, the thing I want from you right now is, how do you do this? How do you write a book? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that's why I came up with it's the, the the full title is the novel and the novelist an insider's guide to the craft. And, okay, good. Yeah. So, if anyone's listening, you're a writer and you want to. Look at that. Take um, take a look at that book, and then as well as the novel that um, that yeah, Tom based some of his principles from. Well, Tom, it's been great talking with you. I really appreciate your insights. I mean, I was taking notes myself just because some of the names and dates and and all of that really really apply to everything that I do when I give presentations. And I never knew some of the scientific facts behind all of that. I think all storytellers. You know, or, or maybe not all, but many storytellers naturally, instinctively do a lot of those same principles. And I think pointing them out to people and allowing them, you know, to to um, 
well, to to apply what what science and and history have taught us can can help hone that. And just remember, just because it has a basis in science doesn't make it any less magic. Yeah, no, like that's a good thing for someone from Walt Disney to say. <laughs> <laughs> Our dose of pixie so. dust for the day. <laughs> <laughs> Well, how can we connect with you online? I know you're on LinkedIn. Are there other places where we might be able to catch your speaking schedule of when you're doing a presentation? The, um, the speaking schedule is pretty easy in that I'm for, for the time being, I'm only doing one conference a year, and I'm alternating between two conferences. So, so this year I'm at the Blue Ridge Mountains Christian Writers Conference uh, in May, which is in... Uh, uh, Ridgecrest, um, North Carolina, which is very close to Asheville, and that's 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 in May. And then next year I'll be at the Florida Christian Writers Conference, wherever and whenever uh, they schedule it for 2018. And I just alternate between the two. Okay, um, great. They're both fairly easy for me to get to. Actually, North Carolina is not easy for me to get to, but it's a nice motorcycle ride. So, so I don't. Ah, that's so. right. I, I <laughs> forgot about that hobby of yours. Motorcycle riding and scuba diving, I love it. Yeah, which are two incompatible sports because you can't use the <laughs> one to get to the other. But, you can't uh, really use one to get to the other, it's true. But, uh, but those are the only two conferences that I'm doing for the foreseeable future is I've, I promise both of them that I'll do them every other year. And, and I know uh, that your work keeps you busy there. Online, so. um, uh, let's see, Twitter handle is at Morrissey Riding with uh, M and the W. Uh, capitalized, and uh, um, what other way? On Facebook, I've got I've got two uh, sites, and I'm not sure why. One is my personal site, which is under my name, Tom Morrissey, and the other one is the novels of Tom Morrissey, which tends to be more uh, professional announcement, work related. Okay, great. So people check out Tom online. Uh, Twitter's a good way to get in touch with him, and for Anyone looking to check out my books, stephenjames.net, and my Twitter handle is ReadStephenJames. And uh, for more shows, go to thestoryblender.com, and you can see all of our past guests' bios as well as listen in to the presentations that they've given and to the discussions that we have had. And my friends, as I always like to close up, always remember... The art of the story is all in the blend. Have a great week. We'll see you next time around.